Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 340th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Melissa Joy. Melissa is the founder of Pearl Planning, an independent RIA based in Dexter, Michigan, that oversees more than $175 million in assets under management for 251 client households. What's unique about Melissa, though, is how she originally built her career following a path of becoming a partner in a large ensemble firm. But when she finally got the opportunity to make partners, she still had an external lawyer review the partnership documents and the company's operating agreement like a prenup, hoping for the best and that it would be a relationship for life, but ensuring there was a clear documentation of what would happen if the relationship didn't work out in the long run, which proved to be important as ultimately she and the business did grow apart in their vision of the future. And the legal work Melissa did up front allowed her a pathway to be able to start over again when it became clear that she and the firm needed to part ways. In this episode, we talk in depth about how, while Melissa was being considered for partnership at her former firm, she decided to have outside counsel review the firm's operating agreement with its provisions and limitations about what happens if the partnership would be dissolved so that she could be clear on what it would mean for her if she ever had to leave the practice. Why, even though Melissa began her career in operations and didn't intend on changing roles, she was inspired to acquire her CFP marks because of advice that her mentor gave her that she could advance her career further and bring more value to the firm if she also brought in assets and had her own clients. And how despite having a 30% share of her former firm as a partner, Melissa decided to leave and launch her own business because she recognized that she enjoyed working on the development and growth of a business, but her current firm was reaching a more mature stage where major growth and rapid expansion were just no longer the main focus. We also talk about how Melissa set up her firm as a DBA under the firm of a close advisor friend so that she could have support and time to focus on business development as she was getting started instead of working to achieve her Series 24 to operate as a local branch before launching. Why Melissa is a big proponent of business operating systems and implements a combination of EOS and small giants in her own firm so that she can focus on company goals, create career opportunities for employees, and streamline processes. And how Melissa grew her firm by developing hundreds of marketing touches through social media, networking meetings, sponsoring local events and webinars and newsletters, and then rebuilding her firm's website so that prospective clients could more easily schedule prospect meetings with her when they were ultimately ready to reach out. And be sure to listen to the end, where Melissa shares why she intentionally went through the Zing Train management training so that she could become a better leader and boss in her firm. Why Melissa feels her next natural step in the business is to take the role of CEO as she recognizes that she's a visionary and has become more confident in her leadership qualities, which can help take the business to the next level. And how Melissa struggled early in her career with imposter syndrome, but ultimately found that she had more success when she figured out how to speak up and start trying to get noticed instead. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Melissa Joy. Welcome, Melissa Joy, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Michael, I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate you joining us, and I'm I'm looking forward today to kind of like getting getting to nerd out a little bit on on like businesses and business systems and like how we actually learn to build and run effective advisory businesses like a, as a business. Uh, you know, if if like if you look so sort of classically at any business. 
um, like in any industry, like most businesses basically have three functional areas. Like there's something that is marketing and sales and like brings in clients or customers or business or revenue. There's some kind of product function that like makes the widget or delivers the service, like does the thing you get paid for. And then there's a third area that's kind of like operations, finance, business systems, like all the stuff that actually makes the business run as a business and actually make it like function successfully as a business. And in the advisor world, we tend to not do a lot with that third category of finance and operations. Like either the business isn't quite big enough to need the the infrastructure to put a lot of investments there, or we just manage to grow enough that we kind of stumble our way through it. But I know like you you have you have lived that journey because you actually started in the operations side of the business before coming to the the advisory side and then launching your own firm. And uh, I, and I, as I discovered, uh, we we share a little bit of a, maybe an affinity for like nerding out on some of the systems, like the actually tradable yes. systems that are out there, like EOS and Small Giants and 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 some of the other uh, platforms that are out there that help teach this. And so I just I'm looking forward to getting to talk about like what. What it means when you're really actually trying to like run the business as a business and work on the business as a business. And at least to me, like the the huge gaps we have in the industry and the fact that most of the systems that are now gaining traction in the advisor world about how to run a business don't come from the advisor world because we don't we don't actually know how to do this and don't get trained. You you have to look elsewhere to figure out how to actually like run a business as a business in this world. It's so true. And, um, you know, 15 years ago, because my first 15 to 20 years in the business was primarily operations. I got to be a student of financial planning companies. And I also was guided by a group of founders who were very interested in creating a business that they were proud of. And so the study of professional services firms, um, using outside advisors to seek to become better and not just looking, you know, within your professional conferences of other financial advisors and or broker dealer um, as a source was a huge part of that learning experience, which I love. And um, I'm excited to nerd out with you, Michael. So, so help give us a little bit more context to just this, like the the career journey that you've had of just where, like, how did you start in the industry? How did you land in the financial advisor business world in the first place? Well, it was um, 25 years ago, and I just happened to answer one ad. Um, I had a liberal like a, art. Like a WANA, like a newspaper. You're <laughs> the dating. You're not, not... newspaper, the Ann Arbor News, to be specific. It's um, now only a website and, and rather defunct. But back in the day, I was... I knew that I could do office jobs and I needed a job. And so I reached out to law firms and financial planning firms. And, you know, it's a coin toss. I could be an attorney today or or working well, for a law firm just as easily. Why, I had no idea. That seems very specific. Like why law firms or financial planning firms? They were the ones that were hiring that wasn't um, – I felt like would be looking for my skill type. I had worked summers in a mortgage company that my dad was the president of, a mid-sized mortgage company. And so I had worked with numbers. I actually had been interested in, in law earlier in my life. And um, so I, and there happened to be like 
one ads place, you know, versus, okay, sure. you know, just go fill in these forms or something like that. So I happened to, it was a financial planner okay. that offered me the job. And so that's, um, that's sure. how I ended up there. So you liked numbers and the law, so it was law firms or financial planning firms. And- I don't even say liked. I just know I could get paid to do stuff, and I would be like, I probably would bring enough value for an entry level job. Okay, and so you answered just like a one ad for. I mean, what was it? Literally, like an administrative assistant or some equivalent as as you were getting started. I mean, as close to the mailroom as you can get, but it was a one-person firm, one financial planner. He was a Raymond James financial planner, um, one-person office. So anything he didn't want to do, I could do. Yours. And, yeah, and the last person who had the role really, you know, was a secretary, scheduled appointments and filed. And I'm not that good at filing, but I was pretty good at talking to the clients and taking care of the things he didn't want to do. I, I drew the line at cleaning the bathroom because that was um, one of the things requested. But I got to listen. We were in the same room. And um, I won't say that I was immediately like, oh, I'm going to have a career here. It was just like, well, I can do this until I figure out what I want to do. And so I worked with him for a year. And so this is essentially like you're like straight out of college, first job out of college kind of thing. Yep. It was the first thing I, you know, dad was like, I'm not paying your bills, so you need to find a job. (laughs) And I'm, and I'm not giving you one. You have to actually go find one. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that was the start and I worked there for a year. Um, and then happened to meet through the son of a financial planner, um, another group of financial planners. I met them briefly at a broker-dealer conference, and then I knew the son socially, and I actually went out to Easter brunch with him and his girlfriend, and he's like, my mom really liked you. It's too bad you're working for so-and-so. And I was like, well, I could get you a resume next week if that would be a good time. I was interested in, um, frankly, making more money and also just having a little bit bigger office. And it, ha- it that was where I worked for the next 19 years. Wow. So, so what was, what was the, like the state of that business and the role as you, as you went in? At the time, the company had, um, there had been quite a few founding partners and three of them stuck and they were 14 years old. And they were looking to truly be an ensemble practice. So they recognized that they had been silos and they had put time, effort, and hiring into trying to collectively build their business. I think it, um, they were in the broker-dealer structure as well, but they were really intentional about building a practice that was a professional services firm. They had read David Meister studied Mark version mm-hmm. and what he had to say. And I mean, my first role was administrative assistant. So I got a chance to work for several partners, ultimately working um, for a woman named Estelle Wade, who was like a business mother to me. She retired three years after I started there. Um, she's in her late 80s. I just got a chance to visit her in Arizona where she's retired. Um, but I had someone who had several, the founders and who believed in me, um, saw something in me, you know, thought I was doing a good job as an assistant, but also started to find projects that they thought um, had been partner responsibilities. And then it was like, hey, can you research this mutual fund or that? And so I just started to take on specific kind of tasks that required a little more thought. um, And they liked what I did. 
And so how did that role evolve and, and grow over time? So over, I got licensed in 2003. So there's like five years where I was starting to do investment research, but it wasn't trading. Well, to be frank, like way back in the day, you know, you called the trading desk, whether you were licensed or not. But eventually, you know, this was more formalized and operationalized. And so um, at that firm, and so in the intervening years, I had an investment research role, like junior investment researcher. The partners set aside time each week to meet together and they would bring me in when they said, you know, go find some small cap funds to compare. In the beginning, it would be, you know, these are the funds we want you to look at. Give us some analysis. I had a debate background, so I could see both sides of an argument and really enjoyed (laughs) that, like research and deep dives into um, narrow paths. And so um, that evolved um, over time to being kind of an investment assistant to the partner that had the largest assets, Dan Boyce. I would make phone calls to fill up the um, bonds on the bond, on the bond ladder. So I'd, we were not discretionary. I'd, I'd solicit trades um, for that, and then eventually built a, in addition to the research responsibilities, built a system to send letters in bulk to make recommendations for rebalancing since we were, um, we were not discretionary. So, you know, okay. how do you, how do you manage the prospectuses and send letters and then tell mm-hmm. them to call back and approve the trades? Um, it seems like, you know, when I tell the people that I work with today, what we used to do, I'm, I'm sure they have no concept of what that yeah, was. Like- it's it's hard to really reflect like how revolutionary uh, this combination of like rebalancing model management software and and discretionary like the ability to discretionary models are for like how painful it was back then i mean some firms choose to do that now and have built particular infrastructure on how to support that but yeah. you know, back then we did that cuz there was no other choice and it was really manual and tedious like you know, clients got rebalanced when they were coming in for a client meeting because that was a, a good excuse to like make now the point that we're actually going to get all the stuff done for them to trade because at least they can authorize it while they're here at the meeting. Yeah. And so how do you get that done when you are trying to centralize operations? You're trying to have a, yeah. a shared investment model. I mean, I get to see, if you think about it, if you're somebody sitting in that role, you get to learn a lot of the psychology of these multiple advisors, right? Like, yep. What rec- at the time we kind of had a bullpen, so you had your list of recommended funds, and everybody had their favorite. So you pick from the bullpen of of what you wanted. The portfolios were mm-hmm. similar, but you know there was always some you know thematic spices that were based on the advisor or the week, yep. things like that. Um, but you know they were also building something that out of nothing. And I think doing at that point in time, a lot's changed over 15 or 20 years. Um, They weren't the most sophisticated then. We weren't, I wasn't. Um, But it was building, you know, pathways for clients to be better managed at scale. Okay. And, and so was that, was that a thing that like this dynamic of trying to create a path so that you can manage, manage client portfolios more effectively at scale? Like, was that, is that something that was happening around you in the firm at that time? Or was that actually your like your thing of y'all, this isn't scaling. Like we got to start changing this, and 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 I want to push us this direction. At that point, that it still was 
like kind of discussions and I was more in the room, not brought into the room for the, you know, for the, here's what we want you to do. But I, I had a seat at the table um, for the investment portion of partner discussions or let's say financial planner discussions. And so I was coming in with ideas and I was also tracking um, performance. You know, we used Advent Access back in the day and I was looking at por- different portfolios, how they were doing. I was also doing the investment research. It was primarily active managed or almost all active managed open and mutual funds or um, blue chip stocks, um, which I did not have the stock research responsibility. So I was responsible for um, the due diligence on the investment research for open and mutual funds at the time. I would attend due diligence meetings, um, do research, like meaningful research Um one could also call it overhead, but like har- deeper work on maintaining um, a centralized kind of investment um, heartbeat to the firm. Okay. So then what what came next on this career journey evolution for you? Because I'm knowing now it's like you started in the administrative and you've now yep. landed in like increasingly deep in the investment research, investment management side of things. So what what came next on the journey? So then um, I was kind of a fixer or a creator for project management. Um, I had a stint um, being a manager of the client service department after having been one of the people managed in the client service department not too long prior. Um, Certainly an intimidating job or can be when your peer becomes your boss and how are you welcome, things like that. Yeah, how Um, did that work Like when you became the boss of the department you entered into? Well, and I was definitely the youngest or one of the youngest in that department as well. So I had some skin, knees and bruises along the way, but it worked out over time. I That's the first time that I engaged with Zing Train um, from the Zingerman's community of businesses. And I took a class called Leading with Zing. Um, a lot of food service companies would send their managers to the class, but it was all about, you know, how to be a great boss. Um, and so I had that job. I still was doing the investment research. For those who aren't familiar, what's Zing Train? So Zingerman's community of business is, um, I'm, I live in Dexter, Michigan, and that's where um, Pearl Planning, my business is today. They're in Ann Arbor, Michigan. So if you've uh, visited somebody at University of Michigan, you may have heard about Zingerman's, this great delicatessen built to be like an old school Jewish delicatessen with some of the greatest um, locally sourced food or like organically sourced. And they have a a group of businesses. Um, if you've read Small Giants, which I know that you have, Michael, um, they are featured in Small Giants, and they intentionally, even though they had a, a story and a brand that would be very well received with a franchising model or expansion, they chose to stay local um, and have single locations, and then they started to like foster a community of more businesses, including um, a bakery, coffee shop, uh, um, several restaurants here in the area, and a um, leadership, like a training program that trains both restaurants. They have like tremendous, um, a tremendous process for visioning that's not about your typical, like, here's my revenue and here's my AUM, but like, what does success look like in the future? What is your vision of success for 
either a project or a company or even personally. So um, that's who, that's my version of who Zingerman's is. They're a really interesting group of businesses. So, and so I guess one of the things in their leadership training program was this, like how to be a great boss like yeah. Tra- training. Yeah, it's like a class on how to how to be a manager and how to tell people when there's a problem in a way that they'll receive feedback and how to set expectations and how important it is that your culture fits with, you know, you walk the walk and talk the talk. And so just like some of those lessons that when you're like struggling to have something to hang on to, because you've got to sit down and, and give the annual review and tell people what they're bonus is going to be. And you've never done that before, giving you a little bit of extra confidence. So yeah, I guess I'm just like, was there a big takeaway for you at the time of like, oh, I didn't, I didn't know that's part of what I needed to be doing if I'm going to be a boss for my old peers? It was more of a backbone, I would say, but it was also <laughs> one of the first times where I kind of like went outside of, you know, um, looking just looking around the office to see what the heck do I do? And I, I found a solution that I thought would help me that I think did, um, that was, you know, not from a CE class or something like that. Right. It was really, okay, how do other businesses do it? Cause maybe they do it better than financial planners who don't always even give reviews for their people and things like that. So, so what came next is then is you continued on this journey. So you've gone investment management, you're managing client services. Yeah. Then we find ourselves at 2008 and, you know, that was a big disruptor. Just I had lived through one bear market when I had much less responsibility, but 2008 was huge, especially if you think about being a firm that does not have discretion if you do any sort of tactical investment allocation. Every single client wants to talk to you. I had um, responsibility not to be anybody's um, financial planner, but I did, um, at the time, it wasn't webinars. It was like um, phone conferences communicating. Mm. I wrote for our investment newsletter. And then um, September 2008, our um, partners with the largest assets happened to be out of the office and out of the country. So got a lot of like firsthand experience talking to clients who feel very disrupted and Uh very, you know, all the emotions. I think those are, you know, I would not choose to live it over again, but invaluable experience Um, in the company too, in, in specifically regarding investments, we wanted, we'd always toyed with when should we be discretion? um, Should we use discretion? Um, But, you know, there was always a reason not to, or the cost of software, et cetera. And that was, what was the hesitation up to that point around, around managing with discretion? Well, you've got multiple actors who need to be comfortable with change and trust each other because it doesn't necessarily make sense, at least the way we were building it, to um, to have everybody have their own, still have that choose your own adventure where you had your bullpen of recommended funds and you decided what was right for which people. And so you need the, a, a crisis often engenders the willingness to act um, mm-hmm. when status quo felt just felt more comfortable and, you know, we'll get to it, but not yet. Um, and so 2008 was that inflection point where it's like, 
um, from a partner perspective, it's time to change. We need to invest in um, software that we can, and we, you know, looked at choices. That was my responsibility to research software. And, and we chose InvestNet or Tamarack at the time, now owned by InvestNet for, we kept Advent Access for performance reporting and we used Tamarack for rebalancing. And the, I guess the, so like the core driver was the resistance to change was, well, if we have discretion, we have to really do it with standard models. And then I can't like pick my funds of like the things that I like to use for my clients and make it different for each client. Yeah. Uh, until the until the pain of, oh my gosh, but needing to talk to every single client on a non-discretionary basis who all want to talk to you and find out what you're doing to help their portfolio in a crisis creates like a massive glut of phone calls and client service that made them say, oh, if we'd been discretionary, could have literally just like sent one email and done one mass call that said, here's what we're doing for all of your portfolios. Come hell or high water, I'm not doing this again. Um, and keep in mind too, I didn't mention this, but we still were um, on the fence. There were, uh, most new clients were uh, fee-based, but there were still clients who were C-shares, A-shares. Yep. You know, there was a lot of operationalizing that again, requires shared commitment. And it seems like a good idea for everybody else. Um, but even with people with, you know, strong adherence to collective operate operations um you know change is difficult and it's all and it's it's costly and it takes time and it's it it feels painful when you anticipate it and sometimes going through it is painful as well and just for context like how many like advisors or people were were on board just i'm 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 gleaning part of this is just when the business gets to a certain size and there's a lot of just a lot of people and stakeholders and advisors involved like any level of change gets difficult because there's just a little bit of a like hurting cats thing. Just like to get any group to go in the same direction for anything is remarkably difficult sometimes. Right. There were six six advisors included, and four of those were partners. Okay. So the you know there's a lot of just and and also two the two founders were closer and closer to retirement. I think just like the last few years, you know, how many bear markets would you like to go through? Well, maybe this is the last one I'd like to go through. So it was closer to retirement as well. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, do you want to go through this conversion um, for your last couple years of work? Um, that's another question. Or in this case, they worked for seven more years, but decreasing kind of time in the office. So what was next on on your journey in actually a lot of fun home. things for if you're a nerd um so we got we d um built models that were truly models that everybody agreed upon we put them into software that was functional and then there because we had not made everyone wrap accounts then there was a kind of um, behavioral psychology test of how to convince each partner to make those conversions and pitch that to clients and so use some if you're if you're in operations and need people with um, the ability to make decisions themselves to do something. I used some healthy competition, kind of reporting on the yeah. stats of how much conversion had happened and things like that. I was going to say, yeah, so what did you do? So you so you made a scoreboard of how much they had converted and yeah. then made all of the 
other partners feel feel Showed bad because many. someone yeah. because someone else like oh they're at 87% well i got to get to 90 exactly yes that is exactly what we did and um that healthy competition works um we also noticed at that point in time that you know um, as a company, the company had grown and over time and um, gosh, it seems like new clients aren't just popping out of the woodwork. A really pivotal growth moment for the company had been between 2000 and 2002. Um, and it just wasn't the same this time. And oops, we, you know, maybe we need to think about how we're marketing. And so I got the opportunity to kind of do some legwork as that project person, uh, rebuilding a website, introducing a blog where various people within the firm had responsibility for contributing to the blog, um, and just thinking about what marketing might look like for a a practice that has more than $500 in assets at that point, but how do you share a central message um, and brand, but also encourage people to reach out to individual financial planners to to engage and, and become clients? Well, so I guess I I have two questions. Then the first, like literally, how 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 did you try to craft a central message and brand for a five hundred million dollar firm with lots of different advisors to to get clients to reach out? And and secondarily, like where and how are you figuring out how to do this? Having come from like an ops, you know, an administrative and ops background into investment management, research, analyzing mutual funds, and now you're standing up the marketing strategy. So how how do those dots connect? I don't know. I was just always, I like to talk in front of people. I was always interested in the, um, I was interested in new, different growth. Um, and you know what, ultimately, like, I think the brand helped, but, and we looked different than your average, you know, kind of Navy bank, um, bank like environment website. Um, you know, there were still some people walking on the beach, I think, but, um, ultimately again, I think measuring and tracking individual, um, net new assets and linking your compensation to your business origination is, um, a big part of that. I thought about that. Um, I continue to think about that in, in my company as I grow people who have their own accountability for business development, um, that, you um there's both the brand can help but also um in most cases it's it's the responsibility of individuals and and hopefully the central firm can help to show who's successful and how so that there's ideas and encourage and reward success so you get to do a stint trying to centralize marketing Mm -hmm. and then at that point we find ourselves we'd also made our first hires for an investment department so they started part time. Um, very uh, challenging hiring time period for firms that had found their revenue diminished yeah, by at least twenty percent. Um, mm-hmm. But we hired in in two thousand nine to part time people, and then um, the next kind of discussion was, oh, maybe um, or I was invited to start to have discussions with the partners about potentially becoming a partner, which is, I guess. It- interesting for for that path well right even now but especially then because you you were you were not in a client capacity right you 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 didn't have clients 
That's right. At, I at knew many of the firm's clients, either because yep. I'd been an assistant way back in the day, or I did talk to, I would come in and, and talk about the investment right. side of our business to clients, especially important relationships in the business. Um, but it was unique. I mean, it, it stood out. I had always done a great job of networking outside of our company just because I love talking about the business. I love sharing some of the things we were working on. And so I always looked at like the reverse mentor, mentor opportunity. And so at that point, when I the discussion started about becoming a partner or having a partner, um, I asked my mentor within the firm, Dan Boyce, um, who was a huge sponsor throughout, has, still is, um, has been throughout my career. Hey, do you have someone you think I could use as a mentor who's not here in our firm? Um, and I had met Kathy Muldoon, who was a good friend of his um, and is a financial planner in Dallas. And he read my mind and said, what about Kathy? And so that's when I had someone outside of the firm who I could talk to and trust um, about the experiences of perhaps becoming a partner in a practice. So you was going to ask, like, where did it come from, this request to the firm to have someone outside the firm to to mentor you? Like that that seems like a very intentional ask. So where, where did that come from? I think it was instinct. It wasn't like a conscious, like, let me map out what can do best. But I, I really could see the conflicts um, that and the dynamics changing potentially, especially like anticipating um, this was all in coordination with planning for succession from the first generation of ownership. And so it, I, I think it was good instinct, but it was something I would highly recommend, you know, regardless of the size of the organization to people listening who have roles similar to the roles that I had at the time to, you know, find the voices outside because you sometimes you're in a jam and you can't find them in a scramble. So it's nice to kind of build your Rolodex and follow up with people and, and people love to be helpful. Women in this business really want women to succeed in the business. And so, um, you know, if you're a woman whose operations and, and looking for someone outside, there are people out there that will help, but it, it was, it was pivotal. So what kinds of, it's like questions were you asking or perspectives were you looking for? Like, what were you, what were you coming to Kathy about? Like how to approach, we had partner meetings um, and I had been kind of invited into the room for more and more um, decision-making times, but there were these big quarterly partner meetings and asking, like kind of strategizing with her about how I could bring things to the to the table to show that I was serious about it and, and had, I didn't have a lot of, you know, wealth to bring to buy in. So I was really bringing my human capital as my, um, my biggest like um, resource there. So help, she would help me strategize there. She gave me a piece of advice that um, is prophetic that, um, you know, I just had plans to always be operational. And she said, Melissa, if you don't have assets, you'll never have control over your career. Um, and I don't know that that's true for everyone, but gosh, sitting here today, I, 
I, um, I still remember those words and, um, but, and I was also a new mom. So I, I had my son in spring of 2009. Frankly, it was like so exciting to have maternity leave as just a break from <laughs> horrible markets. Yes, um, it's like right in, <laughs> right in the middle of, of the rest of it. Like, ah, I'm, I'm going to be out for, for a little while. Yeah. Yeah. And so she, um, she could help. She was a mom had been a mom and had advice there. She's just somebody that like had my back that I didn't need to navigate the, you know, concerns about what their interests were. Cause everybody else had, you know, a very valid reason to be protecting their own interests as we also were trying to figure out what the company would look like over time. So, so I'm fascinated just by these like tid tidbits. I feel like tidbits understates their significance, like the, the perspectives that you were, you were getting from Kathy. So I love the like, you know, if you don't have assets or just like a vision at the high level, like if you don't, if you're not attached to revenue and client relationships, yeah, that's it's, better it's said. harder to have control of your career. You're uh, expendable is I probably what she said. Um, and also I was just trying to emulate the values of the company. Um, I got my CFP designation at that time. I'd only you know, I thought I was, I just thought I was still just doing it to continue to be the investment person, but emulate the values of the company. Um, and Dan Boyce, as a sponsor, invited me to join a group of kind of distinguished Raymond James advisors that had created their own conference um, called Advanced Planner Study Group um, that was, um, is run by an advisor named Carl Stewart. I just was trying to look, I very much recognized that I was a, like a promising person that was still sitting at the kids table. And I mm. was trying, you know, like that Thanksgiving dinner where, you know, should we invite them to sit at the main table or do they need to just go manage those kids over there? And mm -hmm. I really wanted to, you know, I'm in my thirties at this point, I had more than a decade of experience and, you know, to be a partner, I didn't want to just be the promising um, ingenue. I wanted to really um, belong at the table and bring value. And um, that was a period of, you know, really powerful, you know, kind of learning executive presence that it's hard to, you know, think back and say exactly what I did. But I really tried to like transform my, my presence, my what I brought to the room. I would even like try like tell people like, friends when they're trying to do the same like you need to own the room you need to bring in something you know nobody else can bring to the table and things like that so i was trying to be strategic um i thought it was best for the company and certainly for my career and i mean did it work did you get to become the partner <laughs> i became a partner um and it, through a variety of circumstances and initially i was going to be a five percent owner and i um through kind of serendipity, um, I ended up being a 30% owner um, because it helped to balance out kind of the dynamics of partners in the room. And so over that 2010 to 2015 period was that like um, acquisition of shares and at the same time, almost immediately, like the kicking off of the final transitions of the first generation. So the um... So it sounds like like you were you were going to have a smaller initial partner stake, but there were some founders that were looking or ready to get out, and so suddenly just a lot more shares were in play, and suddenly you had a lot more opportunity at the table. 
Yeah, and I think it was like uh, I would be a ballast, perhaps. I mean, you've got to be thinking about what happens if something happens to someone. Right. Does another? Does someone have full control of the company in this like situation where there's an ensemble? Um, you know, I can't. I wasn't necessarily making all the decisions. That's one of the things that is like important to think about. Like you've got to navigate being business savvy, anticipating, you know, your member, your operation of understanding or membership agreement is in essence of like a prenup. Um, and you, but you can't like be so self-interested to um, blow up the deal. Right. Although it's really important to know that you're, you're making a business contract with someone or people that are, you're going to want to work with over time. So there's a lot of stuff going on and and it was like lots of moving parts at the same time. That's an interesting way to frame it. Like the, the business's operating agreement, right? Your LLC operating mm-hmm. agreement, articles of incorporation, whatever your, your structure is, is like a prenup because it explains the circumstances of what happens and who gets what if you break up. And then like- Yeah, the- or death or disability, like yeah. all of that. And who knows who you are, whether you're the yeah. one like breaking up or being broken up with. And, um, you know, a lot, of, and how do you have, I had outside counsel review the documents that I signed, but how much negotiating pack power did I have at the time? Um, probably not much, um, but- it's certainly a time where when you're thinking about things like that, getting outside advice, whether it's a mentor or also legal and, and accounting advice, all of those are, are well advised, I think. So so you literally like hired, just hired a lawyer yourself to say, hey, I'm coming into a partnership. Will you please look at the operating agreement and... I mean, like, tell me what should change. Because I'm assuming, like, their operating agreement is their operating agreement. They got a bunch of partners. It's 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 not necessarily like a a contract with terms you can negotiate. Because if they're going to change it, like, they all have to change, agree to change it, which is a a cat herding exercise unto itself in an ensemble context. So, like, was this in the context of like I want counsel to read it because we may have to negotiate on some of this, or was this in the context of I want counsel to read it so it, at least I understand like exactly what I'm getting into and how this is going to work if it ever doesn't work out. I wanted to understand, but also because of this succession and because the economics of financial planning practices and investment management firms had radically changed from the 90s to, you yeah. know, at this point we're 2011 or 12, um, I think things were being redrafted at the time. And I'm also, you know, discussing this in the context of drafting, drafting my current company's documents. I, I learned lessons along the way where I really, I know it's expensive and, you know, seems unnecessary to lawyer up, but I really think there's value in understanding what you're signing, and um, knowing, you know, in a variety of ways, what could come next and having open, transparent discussions with the people that you're in the room with, um, hopefully on the, you know, most agreeable day when everybody is happy to sign on the dotted line and exchange, you know, capital. Um, so that's, that's what I think. <laughs> I really, I just, I really like the framing of the uh, look at the operating agreement of the business that you're signing into it coming as a partner as a prenup right like in that context you know, you mm-hmm. you go into the relationship wishing for and hoping the best and that this is going to be your uh, life partner in marriage but 
if you've got certain financial circumstances coming to the marriage in the first place, like we do kind of need to put a document together that says how we how we untangle this should this relationship ever not work out. Um, exactly. And I use it to this day. I use that language in my employee hires when I have them sign employment contracts. I've drafted, I don't currently have partners at my firm today, but I've drafted our operating agreement so that when we do have partners, you know, it's built that way, like knowing that hopefully everything works out, but you never, no one has a crystal ball. And um, these agreements help everybody to stay reasonable and, and, figure out how to divide things or add someone to all those things. They're very important. So out of curiosity, were, were there any like provisions that came up or stuck out as like problematic or concerning or like that you actually did have to go back and say, Hey, y'all, like y- you got to change this one. I-, I can't be on board if we don't, if we don't change this one. Like wh- was there stuff that came up or just, no? it felt good to do diligence and at least know. Yeah, it felt good to do due diligence. I really ha- hired a very amiable attorney to look it over. You know, he was like, you might want to change this or that, but all things considered, he knew where I was, the seat I was sitting in, um, that I was junior. And, you know, he knew how much power I had in that room, um, uh-huh. which was less. And so no big, um, no big things to look back on that were like, you have to change this or that. So. But you sign a lot of documents, you know, another thing that you sign oftentimes if you're in the broker dealer world um, is something that says that the branch manager holds the control over your relationship with whoever is a, the um, the broker dealer or a likely custodian as well in RIA cases. And nobody knows that that's in the 10 pages of the FAA agreement that you sign with the custodian because it's like a throwaway document and who wants to read that legalese. But that's something else that you need a side agreement on if you're that junior partner that comes in, if you've got, you know, kind of a, it's important to maintain relationships and things like that. So this, this is, this is essentially the document that says at the end of the day, like clients are not literally legally signing with you. They're signing with the firm. These relationships are assigned by a branch manager. If you like actually really want your clients to be your clients beyond that agreement, you need you need something else that specifies it. At least in, right. In, or in the you world. know, it said a different way. Um, the clients are the clients of the branch. The broker dealer has a contract with the branch manager. And they will, they don't want to have ambiguous, you know, fights. They need, you know, yep. to make it clear their legal departments do. And so that will be the final person who says whether you can do business with that broker dealer or not. And if you, even if you're a partner, if you don't have a separate side agreement saying, you know, you have a right to do business. I learned this over time. And I also know, um, executives at broker dealers who have had to like mediate between, you know, a branch manager saying, I don't want them to ever be able to do business anywhere. You know, they, they often, I think would also prefer that you get that side agreement so that it's clear that they're not between a rock and a hard place. Because it's otherwise you run the risk that the branch manager refuses to assign you clients and revenue. And technically if that's what they do, like you're stuck. You got to go somewhere else, right? You you either leave and go somewhere else, or you're ex or, or you're escalating to the executive leadership of the broker dealer, asking yeah. them to try to override the 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 branch manager that's technically empowered for this. Right. So I, I guess I'm I'm also just curious as well. You had noted that part of the challenge in thinking about coming to the table with partnership was that 
you didn't necessarily come from a lot of like dollars and family wealth to do a big buy-in. So uh, I guess I'm just wondering, like, how, how did 30% owner work for you just on the economics? Like, just was a, the firm willing to finance this? Was a like a portion of it treated as sweat equity for for coming in? Like, just how did that work? Yeah, I don't think I can go into the specifics, but it was more okay. of the sweat equity route where it was a much lower buy-in than you'd be used to today. So, so you become partner in a sort of unique, like not non-revenue producing role from like yes. how we classically draw these these lines in in the advisory industry. So, did did that like did that change your your role and your job duties within the the firm? Like what? What happened after you become partner and you're continuing in the business? Well, another piece of serendipity. So um, a couple th- things happened. First, I was on maternity leave with my second child in 2013. Got a call from an acquaintance who said someone I know has won the lottery. And um, I was being referred this client. I had no clients. And so I again, based on instinct, thought this would be a good time for me to have assets versus refer this person to someone else in the company. I think there had been discussions in the past about someday maybe I'll be a financial planner or have clients. And and so that felt like the right day to ask for it. When when you had like a literal lottery winner coming in saying they want advice. Okay. A multi-million dollar lottery winner. So Good, good timing. Yeah. And I took a little journey um, meeting Susan Bradley, very interesting first client. And then um, there had been, in the meantime, a land grab um, in a good way, Like, but you know, assets had been distributed and assigned for this, this succession. And so the existing financial planners in the company all were um, getting increasing responsibility for um, these clients from these two founders, um, Marilyn Gunther and Dan Boyce, who um, had been the you know the backbone of the growth of the company and had been there from the start, and I wasn't a part of ninety percent of that. But then this new client relationship opened the door primarily for Dan Boyce to say, "I have these twenty or thirty clients I've been holding back who are complicated." Um, large. Melissa knows them quite well because she talks to them about investments. And so I I had like a very unique responsibility for a very small segment of clients that happened to be some of the most complicated and largest by asset clients in the company that I started to have responsibility for and either um, in some cases solo and in some cases teamed up with other planners in the company had responsibility for a handful of very large clients. And so then suddenly you you are in a client facing revenue producing role with a limited number of clients by quantity, but probably a pretty healthy revenue size because they're big clients. That's right. So I still had operational responsibility. I diminished my day to day in the investment department, but still had a role there, kind of as leader. As we there's like terrific leadership. Um, successors in there. And then it had built out a more centralized financial planning department concept, whereas in the past we'd had like a someone who was the financial planning department that kind of like things got lost in interpretation when it's like run this plan or projection versus kind of converting to associate planners that were in the room and <laughs> heard the 
client's voice tone. Um, so I had continued to have other operational responsibilities. And then I had this cohort of clients. Um, and so that was kind of where I was at, let's say, 2015 or so. Okay. So what comes next as you continue on this journey? So next was kind of a pathway where everything I'd ever dreamed of as a financial, like, or I wasn't, you know, I was late to the game on financial planning, but everything I dreamed of, of this awesome journey of being in, um, in in roles in a financial planning company, we climbed the mountain for years. We talked about, we wanted to be a billion dollars in assets. Um, We're reaching that goal as well. And I'm someone who's very interested in growth. I'm very interested in change, um, building things, projects, um, what's next. And I kind of like had checked off the things on the list and the what's next just became less and less clear. Even writing the company's vision, and again, we used Zing Train, um, the clarity of where I fit was becoming less clear. Because because you're because you're very growthy, but the company is getting to a billion dollars of assets and successful transition of the business from the founders to the next generation. And so just now you've got a I mean just envision like you you've got a good economically scaled, probably very financially healthy business, but that doesn't necessarily mean people want to like fire up change and growth. Often, like when you've got a very healthy, financially profitable business, people are like, yes, and we would like to continue <laughs> to have this exact financially healthy, profitable business. And like, no, I don't really want to spend a whole bunch of money on a new growth initiative that may or may not work out because I'm happy with a sizable company with very good financial Yeah, there were probably, there's probably some of those examples. And also, you know, who knows? There's, my version, other people's versions of the story, and somewhere in between lies the truth. It just like what had felt like so natural and always like, here's where's next. Um, To me, I I was really enjoying working with clients. I really loved, at the same time I was doing work um, with Raymond James Women's Advisor Council. I really loved promoting careers of um, women in financial advice. Um, and just my like touchstone of what's next for the company felt like it should be so natural and it wasn't. And I think it's just me. Like I was, it, I was a square peg in a round hole. And, um, so, you know, less and less did I kind of fit in with what the company was not an indictment of anyone or the company. Um, and so there was this kind of like, um, just, purgatory where I was like hiring, I hired a business coach to try to help me help myself or figure out what was next and things like that. And she asked, what are you going to do? And I was like, oh, I think I'm going to like, just go find clients and, and work with clients. It's going to be fun. And she's like, that sounds like you are so like interested in change. And I don't know what you were thinking, but (laughs) that does not sound like you're going to be happy doing that. So it's just like this Mm. kind of um, time of discontent. And some of it I was, was not conscious, you know, it was just like under the surface. So it's, it's just, you, you feel like you want to do things different or have some clarity for a new next direction. And the, and that just wasn't coming from the company at that point, because they were 
pretty it's not even yeah over. i don't know it's not even about the company but like yeah. i'll give an example i had two really close friends who had like um chosen or <laughs> been told to take a hike from their larger practices and started new companies. And I remember being so envious, like, oh my gosh, I will never start a company, but that is so interesting. And if I were you and like, you may be nervous now, but in 10 years, you're going to know that was like the best decision you ever made and like such a cheerleader for them. But also like, I, I started to want that um unconsciously like it was all uh-huh. under the surface um well, so it just wasn't like um you don't always yeah. need to be at the same place forever and it just wasn't yeah. it it became time to like find a new path well i can also just imagine at some point there there just is a dynamic i think for a lot of folks i've known that just are 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 very future and vision oriented that just almost anytime you're in a large firm with a lot of partners just it's hard to it's hard for anyone to set any particular bold vision because usually you end out in some process where all the people need to have buy-in and everybody needs to get on board which means you have to make certain compromises along the way and and just you know you you it's hard for shared vision to not get committed in large firm environments which for some firms like works great that's how they get their buy-in from all of the partners to to move the business incrementally forward but just even from what you're describing, like you're, you come across as a little bit more of a bold, bold vision person. And that's just, that's, that's hard in any large multi-partner business. I don't think that's even specific to the advisor world. Like that just, that's hard in any large multi-partner business. So true. And we were in the five to seven range for um, partners, which, you know, studies show is one of the most difficult times for buy-in and consensus and things like that and right like too 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 many people to have an efficient decision making process but usually not enough for you to get to the next level like when you get to 10 15 partners firm just like oh heck this just isn't working we're gonna have to create like a board and the board makes the decisions and then like all the other partners just have to accept that like you you know, there's almost always at some point a separate, like a governance separation where not every partner automatically has a say in everything. But yeah, you don't have that in two or three partners. You have to have that by the time you get to 10 to 15. And somewhere in the middle, it gets messy. It was messy for me. And I think that's as much of me and who I am. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was messy. And I just did not have the clarity to like, wake up and put myself Mm. like, you know, kind of like, let's take a step back and see what's going on. And, um, you know, you can make changes in your life. (laughs) I was driving an hour each way. I was raising young kids and putting a lot of the household burden on my husband who was also working is also working and, um, and our nanny. And, you know, there was like a long list of, you know, Melissa, why weren't you looking to, um, change something up? But that's kind of where I found myself really enjoying working with clients, um, and really feeling, like I found the right career and, you know, maybe I wasn't bringing the value or service um, to the company that I once had. Um, and there were really great people that were, um, were a great fit for the roles at the time. Um, and another, you know, kind of thing the business coach asked me is like, well, what if you just like quit or got fired tomorrow? And like, how bad would that be? And I was like, 
ah, uh, that's a horrible question. But then I was like, well, everything would be fine. Um, so anyway, I was like looking for answers and, and didn't know where to find them. I, I was going to say, just like, how do you even get comfortable with the mental? Like, you've been at this firm for nearly 20 years, your entire career. And now trying to imagine, like, could you could you possibly end up not being there? Like, well, just, again, that's I'll use the marriage example. There's a lot yeah. of familial dynamics in um, the in the practice or any practice or any company, um, it was like a marriage that I was in for life. Um, there is no, like, <laughs> there is no contemplation of any other alternative. Um, and I sit here today as the, you know, founder of another financial planning company, which I'm so grateful for, but there was a lot of like, just murky lack of vision in those last few years there. Well, I was going to ask like how, how long did it take for you to navigate this? I mean, it sounds like it's literally a couple of years of know, like fe- feeling of like square, square yeah. peg, round hole, increasing challenge. Yeah. With the benefit of hindsight, it was probably two years um, from mid-2015 or 16 to mid, like early to mid-2018. And ultimately, um, I left over the summer of 2018. Now, you know, whatever that date is, it's not that easy to break up either. So um, it took some time. um, The day that I signed my um, exit agreement was the same day that I incorporated Pearl Planning um, within, you know, five minutes of each other. So there was like this, like, lost in the wilderness phase for a couple years that only with the benefit of hindsight can I see. And then there was this quick sprint of what are you going to do next? I mean, very clearly, I, I love what I do. Even during that, that time, there were so many great things about the work of a financial planner that I like made it more difficult to, to see the challenges. And so um, there was this like four month period where I was just basically like um, trying to figure out what was next. So, uh, and so as you have to go through this transition exit, I'm presuming this is a like, got to sell the, sell the shares back. And cause mm-hmm. I mean, you become a partner and an owner at this yeah. point, like have to sell the shares back and then, and then facilitate a transition out. Right. So I learned a lot about negotiating. I, again, like reinforced my um, appreciation for the very costly um, use of legal advice. But um, and at the same time, I remember, you know, when it was clear that um, there was going to be a new chapter, I did not know. I had no idea what you know, the company vision, I had not been like pre-planning this for like my triumphant, like I'm out of here. Um, but I didn't really want to work for anybody else. I, you know, using that marriage analogy, if you're just getting divorced, at least for me, I'm not ready to walk down the aisle the next week. And a yep. lot of people, like I didn't publicly advertise this, but, you know, I had a really great network professionally that just everybody was like, how can I help? And also, I think some people were interested in like, I have a succession challenge myself, and it would be great um, if Melissa could come in and be that successor. So Um, like when they when they found out you were leaving and you were, you were available and on the market again, the phone calls began like, oh, you're a, you're a promising upwardly mobile young person with 
skills and experience along career, like come join my firm, come be my succession plan for which yeah. you're like, yeah, I'm just leaving one of those relationships like too, too soon. <laughs> Well, it was tempting and like, you know, these are friends and in most cases I had several conversations, but um, it just, I still, like then I could actually say, oh, I want to start, I want to start a company. I can see our company's values. I knew those like week one, um, that courageous authenticity was going to be a value and that, you know, if you're a client, you don't have to come to me with a good hair day or get dressed up in order to, you know, come to your financial planning meeting. You can tell me what's really going on. Um, and I'll be really transparent and authentic with you about the good and the bad. Um, and so like then there's all this like positive vibes and like energy. And like I I didn't have a full business plan, but I was like, oh, I can get behind this and I'm willing to take a lot of risk to um, see if this will work out. And also, you know, it seems like I'm I'm a I'm a decently marketable um, person for a job. So if it doesn't work out, I think I'll have, I'll be able to find a fallback plan. That's an interesting framing. It's like, I'm, I'm going to go, you know, I'm getting these calls for job opportunities, succession plans. I'm going to go start my own firm because, Hey, if it doesn't work out, I can always return their phone calls later. Like someone's still going to hire me. There's a lot of demand for, for someone in my position and role. Exactly. And, um, so I spent, I actually, there's a video on our the front page of our website today that I recorded four months before the company started. I knew the name, um, Pearl Planning. What it, Pearl is my grandmother's middle name and my daughter's, but a pearl is an irritation that turns into something beautiful. And um, I knew some of those values. And we actually filmed that video three months prior to founding the company when I was still, you know, talking to other options and trying to figure it out. Um, my friend Laura Garfield at Idea Decanter was like, "We're we're doing this because we happen to be together at a Raymond James National Conference." And I don't care, Melissa, if you're you know throwing yourself a pity party. We're recording this video for Pearl Planning, and so um, it it felt very comfortable and natural. And I had you know I had not had significant business development responsibility. Um, so, you know, the big question was like, okay, great. Like I, I was full disclosure fortunate. We started with 50 million in assets from 50 client relationships um, that I had previously knew and worked with. But after that, there was no intention of, you know, kind of fishing in the pond of my old client pool. Um, so, actually, so there was like a $50 million client base that you were allowed to bring, I guess, like bring with you or, or, have as part of the transition, but then after that, like it's a it's a hard line, like no no fishing in the old pond of the prior firm, like clean break, clean break, and that very much for me working. too. I wanted to, you know, I wanted to do it where I could say that I was, you know, it was about my success. I actually listened at just in June of 2018. I think Kathy Longo's episode of oh, your no. podcast was um, who went through a similar transition. As yeah, your, she she also left from a a, a larger billion dollar uh, multi partner firm uh, to to go and start her own firm from scratch and build her own path. It was so well timed that episode, and it was I remember being at. Um, one of my advisor friend's offices visiting her, like trying to figure things out. And Kathy, I had emailed and I was like, would you please give me an like half an hour anytime? Like I heard your episode and um, I would love to talk to you. I just felt 
and actually one of my partners had even mentioned like did you see that Kathy left um, accredited and I was like I think it was like a hint like maybe you should think about that yourself oh, yeah. <laughs> but, um, anyway I reached out to her and she was so gracious she was like four years in I think um, very successful and she still is and and we still talk and even saw each other on a retreat a couple weeks back um, but it was so meaningful to me to talk to somebody who had been in that ensemble practice where the firm's identity was kind of um, you know it, your identity as a planner and to hear from someone how it went and just give me like the confidence of, Hey, this is possible. I've got somebody I could, you know, kind of like, um, mirror mimic or, you know, know that they were successful to give me extra hope. So I guess I'm, I'm also just wondering just how you approach this from literally the, I I need to start building and running a business. I mean, I'm, I'm struck on the one hand, uh, you know, you spend a lot of time in various operations roles that gave you a lot of perspective on just building systems and infrastructure on the business. On the flip side, you were doing it in a larger firm that has certain resources that larger firms have, which you you don't get when you hang your own shingle and and get started on your own. So uh, I guess I'm just wondering, like, so where are you turning just to figure out how to how to run this thing as a business and start building and get going. Yeah. So I like, I think it's a pick your battles, like pick what you think is going to bring you the furthest and figure it out as you go. And a lot of that first like six to 12 months was like looking bigger than you are. And I had, you know, frankly spent 20 years almost um, relying on we're big. That's why you should use us. And then I'm like, you know, I had my first new client meeting in my thousand square foot space that I, I just doubled, but you know, it's a very humble open space. I, with, with a card table is the only furniture because furniture doesn't arrive the day you order it, um, with a business owner, um, who'd never met me and had been kind of on hold for a few months. And, and I was like, you know, if you look around this office, it doesn't say much, but I've got a lot of experience and I've got a lot of great ideas. And he was like, I'm a small business owner. I get it. So it was kind of like, I may not be for everybody right now um, because, you know, we're, there's a lot of like heart and I think wisdom, but, you know, it's a startup and it very much a a bootstrap startup mentality. Um, and so I just p- picked my battles. I was fortunate, um, have to give like so much gratitude and thanks to Sherry Stevens, who um, was uh, the branch manager of a Raymond James broker dealer, independent broker dealer office. And um, she let me be a satellite because I didn't have my series 24 or compliance licenses to be a branch manager myself. And it was like, oh, this, you know, what am I going to get done this quarter? I can either open a business or study for the 24. So um, she's still a sister company um, to, and Stevens Consulting is our RIA. And so we shared some things, um, some infrastructure and technology and um, middle office um, uh, resources. And we still do. So help me understand is how you, how that environment fits. So I'm I'm presuming like prior firm was was Raymond James and had some some broker dealer business, and so like some of your 50 million of clients that came with you had broker dealer business that that you still needed to be in a in a broker dealer environment as opposed to just hanging an RIA shingle on your own. It was more a function. So everything was fee. I mean, there was maybe. 
I had to like carry over so like four old annuities and get insurance licenses because you know I didn't want to tell clients they had to leave anything behind. Right. Um, but it was a very seamless process, um, paperwork wise. If I didn't and um, speed wise, if I didn't found an I very much wanted, especially if you think about marketing BD world versus RA world. I very much wanted to be in the RA world. I thought that is where I was culturally a fit, but I very much wanted, you know, those clients that um, were the people that I was able to continue to work with to come with me and for expediency. Um, Because now like they don't, they don't have to repaper off of Raymond James custodial platform. Everything can switch on their centralized systems because all the firms are already Raymond James affiliated. So you're just like changing some internal numbers and I guess a, a brief yep. client sign off. So not even a well, there was a sign off, but I don't even know if there was that paperwork. So I very much knew that I didn't know much, but I knew I would be RA at some point, and we are today. But um, there were reasons, you know, in what, how quickly do you, do you want to get started? Well, you've you've spent twenty years knowing these systems right. inside and out, and also there's, you know extraordinary executives who have your back um, and a huge um, group of um, advisors who are friends and friendly. Um, So that was where we were. I see what you mean about picking your battles of, of like, okay, maybe someday we want to be pure RAA, but right now let's do the switch and find another way to stay on the platform so that the repapering is faster. Oh, and if we're going to stay on the platform, like, let's just find someone to affiliate to that can solve my branch manager issue so that I don't have to spend a month studying for and passing the series 24. And I can focus on like opening the business and getting my marketing going. <laughs> like, and marketing yeah. was what I was most interested in because I, if you're, for those of you that know Michigan, um, Metro Detroit is very distinct from Ann Arbor, where I live, um, or the Ann Arbor, you know, kind of metropolitan area. And so I was changing markets at the same time. Even though I'm still 45 minutes from Detroit, I had intentionally decided to be, you know, five minutes from my house in this town that's like a bedroom community of Ann Arbor and University of Michigan professors who in this town used to be like kind of a farm town. And so I had a whole new market that was pretty insular saying that you lived there, but you had a business in Detroit was not like all doors open. Uh So I didn't have a, I always had the networking skills, but I did not have a natural professional network here where I was going to open the doors. And so, um, you know, TBD at the time, whether um, people would welcome me. It turned out that people were fantastic and very excited to um, support a female-owned financial planning business that didn't feel like it was stuffy and didn't have, you know, a bunch of suits either on the website or when you come into the office. Um, but, you know, marketing the website were critical. I pulled off a spreadsheet from 2019 and I did 280 um, uh, marketing touches. 150 of those were social media related, but another 130 were, you know, networking meetings, webinars, videos, um, in-person meetings, newsletters. I just was like, we are going to bust our butt and see it what sticks. That's an interesting way to frame it. So 
280 marketing touches. Like every time you did a thing that just went out there, you measured and, track. Mm -hmm. and counted it as a touch. So what did that mean in so just in social media context? I mean, is it like I sent a tweet or is this a like I, I wrote an article <laughs> or like I did a video? Just like, what do you... Yeah, tweets what? don't count. So <laughs> I think tweets are more for you know like FinTwit than <laughs> than the rest of the world. But uh, like I started a a Facebook and LinkedIn meme that was every week was a small tidbit of financial advice that like kind of had um, our company brand, which nowadays is like much more prevalent or not novel. But five years ago was kind of interesting and new. Um, we sponsored local events, um, did a webinar every single month, um, did, like I said, newsletters, went to networking events I never would have gone to that might have been a waste of time, but just was like, you know what, I need to be like visible. Right. And then the website too was really critical. Um, it, I built a website and then the website was working. People were scheduling meetings off of it. And I thought it was working so well that I rebuilt that website about a year and a half in just thinking like, Hey, if this is, if people are scheduling on weekends when they can't call you and they're like, finally have time to sit down with their husband and say, Hey, we, we really need to take care of something. And that's when they schedule. I want the website to look and feel better. Um, so that, you know, I, the operational parts, I try to be, I actually was thinking like, how do we make this simpler on everything else? Because I knew that it was going to take a lot of time to like be present and visible on the marketing side. And so, so you're like logging, cataloging all of these touches where you actually like tracking and you know doing like attribution of which things were working because you got clients, which marketing touches were actually generating business results. Yeah, it's harder to tell. I think LinkedIn worked really well because I would find that I was pretty like, um, uh, I would talk about financial planning talk topics on LinkedIn, make it clear I was open for business, but not be cheesy or like hit people over the head with like, you should come work with me or whatever. And I would find distant acquaintances were reaching out on LinkedIn. Um, and then, like I said, the website, I think, is your business card in modern times. I wasn't able to track as much like it was this or that, but people would come up to me and be like, I see you everywhere. <laughs> um, and I did track like that year, for example, we had 34 introductory meetings, did 11 financial plans and had 12 million in new assets. Um, so, you know, we were we were making something out of what could have very easily been have been nothing. So fast forward us to today like what does the business look like today well first of all the business is has grown a lot um we i will tell you michael because you know the numbers so well and you're probably like me you you calculate you you say the big picture numbers and you're like mm, either you know like you're super profitable or there's no profit there we have a bigger team we almost doubled in size in the last 12 months and i've chosen by intention to invest in the business when I see the opportunity and have that capacity um, based on my personal balance sheet. So our assets are smaller than they will be. Everybody's on a growth trajectory, but there's 11 of us on the team. Um, our core operations are here in Dexter, although we have a hybrid team, um, but there's four financial planners, including myself, that are in our office in Ann Arbor area. One financial planner 
um, of that for works with my clients around the country and she's virtual. Um, and the other works with my clients that are here local. And then another woman joined our firm, um, reached out to me and asked to join as an employee, but as an advisor and, and brought assets with her this year. Um, And then we have a divorce financial planning practice from someone who used to work with me um, at my old firm, and she just works with people during divorce. Um, I don't love hourly billing, but that's how we charge for that because there's not an easy way to do it otherwise. But then it's a really natural cultural fit for um, some of her clients, and it doesn't need to be all because she's fairly compensated for the work that she does, um, but to become clients um, after their divorce for longer term okay. purposes. And then we have an office in Gross Point, Michigan, which is outside of Detroit, um, um, with a wife and husband team, um, both former wholesalers um, who actually like to work with those divorce planners. And they're, um, you know, converted more recently from the wholesaling path. So earlier, you know, kind of um, on their own trajectory, but the firm's brand and resources support them and, you know, centralized investment management um, and financial planning provided by the company. We're about 175 million in assets. Um, we've had a lot of growth this year, so we started the year um, at the same place we'd been the year before in terms of assets, around 130 million. Um, and our revenue is growing pretty quickly as well. It was 1.1 million last year and projects to be about one and a half million, with you know a necessity of growth over the next few years to make um, the you know kind of headcount work. Um, but I feel confident that we're on the right track and in the growth and the you know sustainability and endurance of the practices there so how do you just manage like hiring and training of that many people that quickly uh uh it sounds like like a lot of the staff came on in just the past 12 to 18 months and i know just the reality is businesses get to the size like once you start crossing eight to ten plus people like you know departments start to form like Businesses sometimes get a little more siloed as yeah. people get focused into their areas. And then, like, you got to keep everybody aligned and rowing in the same direction. Right? It's like all the, all the things you have to do to, to, to manage business as a business. So I, I guess I'm really curious, like, is how you're, how you're managing that growth and, that, and the team additions, like how you're navigating that. Michael, I think I've heard about your iceberg. It's messy. Like, you know, your building process that's like seems so simple when there's a few of you um, that needs to be replicable. And what I'm trying really hard to do is to not build unnecessary bureaucracy. I just don't love, um, you know, internal meetings to have meetings to schedule the next meeting yeah. to talk about it again. It's just it like I my calendar is the same amount of full as it used to be, but it's it's external. It's it's clients and COIs and learning about new things. Right. Um, so you know that's tough. But I really feel and call the current team is like a dream team, even though we're not in person day to day. Some of us are, but not everybody. Our um, you know team communications are just we know each other, we've got each other's backs. And the vast majority of the team were people that came to me that I knew that I knew were rock stars that were like, Melissa, what do you, you know, I've got a job offer, but what do you think if, um, if I joined you and, and how could we make that work? Um, so there's two women, uh, one of whom I mentored in a program um, from Women's Leadership Alliance, which was created from a group of 
Raymond James Financial Advisors. Um, and she just happened to be relocating from Denver to Michigan. And her former colleague had um, already moved back home to Michigan. What a gift to me because they're like these young 30s CFPs. One of them's a CPA who just have worked at a big firm, have all the skills and um, also personality that's a great fit for our company. Um, and they're helping to take on some of that training and responsibility and leadership as I really work to work with the most complex um, client cases, fewer over time, and then be a true CEO, which I used to say I would never be. Um, and today I really embrace um, that it's going to be the right seat for me for the foreseeable future. So what what changed that like that wouldn't be the seat for you and now that is the seat for you? Well, I think other people assumed that that might be my career path. People outside of my company that knew me well um, in the past and it perhaps was protective or just I never knew I knew that seat would never be the right um, thing for me to go for. Um, and also realizing today that knowing like EOS, um, that I'm a visionary and someday um, we're not going to expand. Like the intention is not to double our size year over year. Like we're, we, I think we should, will be a small giant, but um, there will be a COO at someday, someday who will be that, you know, attention to detail operational person and rein me in. Um, but I'm a natural fit for a CEO visionary. Um, and now I'm comfortable saying that, I think. So, because I know you're you're kind of a student of these systems of EOS and small giants and Zingtrain and the rest. I guess I'm just super curious, like, how, how do you literally run it today? Like, have you adopted one of those systems, none of those systems? Have you made like an amalgamation of your own version of it? Uh, like, what are you actually using as the the, uh, the framework to run the business? I'd say today we are EOS light. And I think... Part of my like ideating, I like to think about things and then, you know, kind of think about them for a long time and decide quickly when it's the right time. But I think we'll probably hire an integrator or an EOS coach in 2024. But, you know, you've got to, again, it's constant pick your battles when you're, especially if you're in growth phase, like, you know, our revenue um, grew 25% last year in spite of keeping assets at the same level. We've had 38% growth this year and onboarded a new employee advisor. You can't do everything all at once. And so I've learned a lot from everybody. And I'm also doing limitless coaching with Stephanie Bogan. Um, but I pick, you know, what works for right now. And some things we'll just have to get to later because it would, and at some point in time, we'll just say, let's take a pause on the growth focus and, and let's make sure that um, we take a breath and and make sure we're we're building the right systems it's kind of a, a ebb and flow um over time when it comes to that and and so um so i guess i'm just wondering like what is what does eos light mean in that context like what what parts like, are you not doing or like that you're 
you're not a fan of at this point? It's not not a fan, but it, you know, implementation is a lot. So I have a VTO, I have a vision traction organizer. We run a level 10 Monday meeting, but not every person in department is running a level 10 or has the EOS training. When I visited companies like, I mean, small giants and EOS overlaps quite a bit, especially because small giants is based in Michigan. Um, they're like, not the um, author, but the the organization um, or their executive directors here in Michigan and EOS, you know, was started here in Michigan as well. And so when you visit like high, high implementers, oftentimes with small giants, like when I was in their cohorts, you know, every person has their VTO at their desk visible. We're not there yet. Like um, when I do, I think I'll use Andrea Schlapia, who is an EOS trainer who has worked, is a past guest of your podcast and has worked um, with the financial advisor community. And I've worked with in the past. I mean, she's been doing this stuff for 20 years and she just is like a stark raving fan of EOS and she understands advisory practices. And so, you know, we, I know the book traction, highly recommend implement, um, you know, but not everybody has like, um, a rock for every quarter. Um, and so there's an intention that we'll be doing that over time, but I wouldn't have you come to learn EOS here today. (laughs) Very cool. So as you made this transition, particularly from uh, you know being in the business, being in a larger platform internally to now running your own, uh, like what surprised you the most about the dynamic of building an advisory business when it's, it's you on your own building an advisory business? I'm just having so much fun. It's not like there's not days that are difficult, but there hasn't been a moment where it didn't feel worth it. I have not one moment of a regret. I love the people that I'm working with. And, um, you know, it sounds Pollyanna, but it just shocks me that, you know, people, when they hear about it, were like, would be like, weren't you so scared? And there's like a hundred other things in other people's lives that would totally freak me out. But it just felt so natural over the years and, um, and fun. And it's still super messy, you know, like, you can always pick somebody to compare yourself to that makes you look so smart and so good. And you can always, you know, find the person or the company to say, I know nothing. How am I even, you know, like able to open the doors each day? Um, And yet it's also worth it. What was the low point for you on this journey? I mean, that like time of purgatory, the time of just, knowing or even not knowing, but having like this sense of unease of what Mm -hmm. is next, especially with the benefit of hindsight, you know, um, looking back, I was not happy um, where I was at. And so that in particular, and I, I had a capitulation moment in, you know, kind of negotiating where I, I felt like many people do, um, working with clients in divorce where you're just like, I give up, take everything. I don't even care. You know, like um, the, those times were very difficult. And I've always felt that from difficulty, and I think I shared with you even the story of pearl planning is like, you know, it's not everything is roses. And, and sometimes you, you learn your own strength through difficulty. So anything you know now that you wish you could go back and give yourself advice five, 10 years ago as you were like 
transitioning into partnership and and starting down this road? I know you you've you're you're a fan of of mentors. So like, what would you what would you go back and mentor yourself now? You know, it's it, I there's not a lot I would change because I wouldn't would want to end up in the seat I'm in today. But I do think you know that advice that I mentioned from Kathy Muldoon that without the revenue being your responsibility, then you you can't control your journey is, you know, prophetic. And so, you know, would things be different if I spoke up about becoming a financial planner sooner? I don't want to do that, but I think there's probably people who, you know, have the imposter syndrome who think they'll never be ready, who should probably raise their hand. So I hope somebody's listening out there that can hear the stories of being quite strategic in their career um, and how that can pay off that might be inspired to, you know, speak up a little bit more quickly or ask for a little bit more. What advice would you give to younger, newer advisors like getting getting started in their career today, looking to come into the industry? I think if you feel like you're different from most people in the room, um, especially speaking to women or people of color, um, then if you can say something half intelligible, you know, just speak up because people will remember you and notice you and you're going to say something great, um, but only if you use your voice. So make the most of doors that are open for you. Ask for doors to be open for you. Seek sponsors. Um, also follow up. So um, if you meet someone and they seem like someone who you'd like to know better, you only really need a couple times to talk to them after the first time to make them an advocate. Um, I found I had so many people who had my back when I was making that career shift. Um, my friend, Laura Webb calls it your peeps and your posses, your posse. So there's, you know, your peeps that, you know, who like the back of your hand, the people you text every day. And then there's your posse who, you know, they may not know you as well, they're acquaintances, but they, they want the best for you. And so I just be looking and intentional with networking. And if you meet somebody follow up and say, nice to meet you. Or if you know something, they don't say, Hey, here's that resource I mentioned. If you become more proactive, and kind of active in managing your career, it's going to pay off. And how did you go about like the networking to find those people? I feel like a lot of us say like, well, do more networking. Yeah. Do, do what? So if you go to, if you get the opportunity, whether it's a local FBA event that I'd say the doors are open for almost anyone, or if you happen to get sent to a conference or, hey, how about asking to go to a conference, then instead of just attending the meetings and if you went with someone from your company or someone you already knew, branch out and say, hey, we should like divide the room and like go see if we can, you know, sit at a different, at a table. I would even like, I was, I started researching open-end mutual funds, actively managed funds. And when I got invited to a dinner, cause they, you know, they were peddling a mutual fund and a mm-hmm. portfolio manager was there. I'd wait to see where the portfolio manager was positioning <laughs> themselves. And I'd like intentionally try to get as close to them as possible. I'd look for the person who had the most power in the room and say, if I can meet and like, have a target of like, these are people that either I would like to meet, or it seems like would be interesting or interested. Um, I, you know, 
inserted myself in a way that I would never do in my personal life. Um, and that helped me to, you know, gain confidence. The first person that like thinks that you have something to say gives you more confidence for the next person, even if they don't have any kind of resource or, or, you know, network for you in exchange. It's powerful framing. But just like, you know, if you're in a networking space, like try to figure out whoever has the most power in the room and, and try to sit next to them and just like get, get if Michael Kitsis is in the room, then, you know, be on that half of the oh room. God. I'll just be like wherever the, <laughs> you already the, are the mom, darkest but... <laughs> corner is, the furthest, the furthest away from the music in the band. Oh, uh, just my, kidding. My introvert still kicks in. I hear you. But, you know, just don't, if you go to a conference and you come back and you're like, I went to these sessions and you didn't interact with anyone different, that's fine if you're happy with where you're sitting. But every new person you connect with could have a pathway or an open door, um, or you may need them in the future. So it, it's not like you have to have a Rolodex of a thousand, but do be building. So as we wrap up, this is a, a podcast about success. And just one of the themes that come up is word success means very different things to different people. And so you're on this wonderful path of now building your own advisory firm as you're, you're coming up on $200 million and, and have been this journey for 20 years with the prior firm. So, you know, the, the, the business stuff is going quite well. How do you define success for yourself at this point? I've always been so achievement oriented and I used to think achievement was success and I still really need achievement. I need that like new mountain to climb. I need my three and five year pathway on the vision traction organizer, but having that list of things you want to accomplish when you get to that moment rarely results in a feeling of greatness or success. I mean, to be frank, Michael, this podcast has been, um, you know, starred on the board for a long time and I'm so glad we're able to do it. But the day I got the email asking me to, to schedule, was you know okay what's next and so uh, uh-huh. <laughs> no i mean it's so like, excited curse, but it no, wasn't like hurts of us uh, achievement oriented people as yeah. soon as you jar- check the darn box you reset the goalposts for yourself it's cruel yeah already resetting right so that isn't and it goes hand in hand with like this concept of abundance and um thinking about like brian portnoy's conversations about contentment. And so to me, like success is, is moments of satisfaction. Um, it's moments of contentment and recognizing what is enough. Um, it's, it's celebrating others' success. Like this, I'm, you know, relentless on tracking growth in assets. And this month, my team is has um, more new assets than I do. Um, and that to me is like, a, ah, that that feels good. Like, so I, it's those little moments of satisfaction and seeking them out on the personal side. Cause it's so easy to find sometimes, um, concepts of success, at least professionally that feel easier to attain. So it's, it's very much like high up on ha- Maslow's hierarchy. It's not, it's not just a bullet point on a, on a spreadsheet. Very cool. I appreciate that so much, Melissa. Thank you for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. It's been so fun to geek out. Thank you, Michael. Likewise. Thank you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View 
at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.